Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. Right. Well, we are continuing our series on hard questions about the Christian faith, and we're talking about creation, evolution, and science today. And this is probably one of the episodes where, I mean, it's only our third episode, but it's one of the episodes where we probably would all say we are figuring this one out. And in a lot of ways, we have open hands. We're going to talk about some of the ways in which we have closed hands, things that we hold tightly. But I almost feel like I could wish I could do this podcast in five years and that somehow I would have better answers in five years. <laughs> and, um, but we're going to do it today instead. And so, um, any, any, any thoughts you guys have going into it, how you're feeling about it? Yeah, that's just something we were talking about right before we got going here is that a lot of the way that we're going to prep for these podcasts isn't doing four weeks of research and studying a bunch of different theories and then coming up with the best answer that we can. But a lot of it's going to be kind of what we've experienced as we've had conversations with a lot of other Christians and a lot of non-Christians over the past eight years in ministry contexts, just in our lives and the dorms at CU. That's how a lot of our answers, a lot of the ways we've looked into things have been formed. And so we're coming more from the perspective, how do we think about this and what actually kind of makes sense and resonates with people more than we're going to come with a 30 bullet points to defeat evolution. Yeah. And I would say this is one of the, this is a prime example of just theology and progress where we are all completely learning and um, yeah, we're not yet figured this one out in full. Doug, what about you? I think this one's also interesting because I've got less of an idea what my brothers are going to say here than I would normally have. We've got some things that I think we're pretty much all in common with, but it'll be interesting to see exactly what you guys say, how you answer it. And we also know that we'll have people that hold strongly to the Bible that would disagree with wherever we end up. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe even would be frustrated with some of the answers or possibilities that we suggest (laughs) today or even openness on certain things that we have today. So with, without much further ado, uh, Greg, what's the specific question that we're actually answering today? Yeah. So the specific question that we're trying to look at is, is the account of creation in the Bible compatible with science? That's kind of the overarching question that, usually comes up and and some of the sub points on that are creation evolution which one's right and just in general are science and christianity compatible or do you just kind of have to check out intellectually when you become a christian or look into things like genesis 1 and 2 so that's the main overarching question that we'll be addressing cool so, Doug, you want to start us off with your, how would you answer that question? Yeah, my first thing that I bring up with creation evolution is that 
everyone has an origin of the universe problem. And thinking through the origin of life, the origin of matter and energy, if you take God out of this, you have to account for those. So to say that life comes about from non-living matter, nobody believes that except for here. And to say that everything that exists can come from nothing, nobody believes that either. And we can push it back a little bit, but there's still a problem of the origin of the universe, the origin of life. And it's easier for me to believe that God is self-existing and that he created everything out of nothing than to believe that out of nothing, nothing brought forth everything. And even if you go all the way down to string theory and say atoms aren't these things, but it's little vibrations in space and time, there's still no way to account for how those vibrations exist, how space exists, time exists. So everybody here, if we're honest, has something to account for that we have to believe by faith and that we can't replicate. Um, I think one of my other thoughts taken from R.C. Sproul is that God has revealed himself infallibly, which means totally or correctly, in scripture and in nature. And we as theologians can interpret scripture wrong or scientists can interpret nature wrong. And I'm not sure on this one where exactly that is, because there's things that have existed in the past where we thought, oh, this is something scripture teaches us, like the earth being the center of the solar system, and later found out, now we've misinterpreted scripture. All that said, I still lean towards a literal six days of creation. I'd probably tie that to Exodus 20.11, and the grounding for the Sabbath, but I'm open to being wrong on this one. I'm especially open to the framework theology, or framework account for creation, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but I would hold especially that there has to be a literal Adam and Eve. Beyond that, I'm open. Yeah, yeah. I think my answer would be to the question, is the account of creation in the Bible compatible with science? I think I would say, I believe ultimately it's the foundation of science, um, that the account that we get in Genesis 1, 2, is that we, 3, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, let's say, is that we have a God who created out of nothing, he created all things good, and he creates them intentionally and in order. And if you actually look back at the history, a lot of the foundation of science came from uh, the belief in a God who had the Judeo-Christian God who had created things in order in a way that could be observed. The laws that which he had created that governed the universe were in order and could be observed and tested. And so that was a lot of the foundation of actually the beginning of science. And so I would say I believe that Christianity is compatible with science and ultimately that science is also a proof of um, God's creation. And so science is an invention of God. It's a creation of his in the sense that he created an orderly world. He put us in that world to exist and live in it and to understand and grow in understanding. And so I see in 
the beginning of the Bible, the account of creation, a God who's intentional, who creates good, and actually some of the highest values that we now have in our culture of science as well as dignity and human rights, I actually think are ironically founded in Genesis 1. And I say ironically because I think a lot of people discredit Christianity as being unscientific and oppressive. And yet it's actually in Genesis 1 that there's really the foundation of those things. The idea that we have an ordered world that can be tested and observed comes from the belief, a belief from Genesis 1 of the way that God is created. And so science really in a lot of ways arises from this um, account. And so does the idea of human dignity, values, rights, which is another huge value we have as a society that people were made in the image of God and therefore each person has a, a value and a dignity. And so sort of this irony that a lot of the ways that Christianity now gets criticized in our culture is sort of like a branch of a tree trying to attack the very root of that tree. It's sort of a twisted version of it. And now it's going back to the root and it's saying um, this is this is wrong, this is flawed, this is oppressive. And yet it's the very root that gave the foundation of that critique in the first place. And so I think that the Bible does give a coherent account of creation. What it says exactly, I think there's a lot of variance among Christians. And I'd be glad to talk about that with anyone if they ask questions. But in a lot of ways, I think I'd push originally to those foundations of what is the account actually saying and more of a what is it saying? What is the underlying realities? And then I would probably push secondarily to if you want to talk more, I'd love to talk about the how. But I think the what is really a lot of what the text is trying to answer in the first place of what type of God is creating and what type of creation has he made. And then how mm -hmm. questions would be, I would say, in a lot of ways, secondary. How long did it take? What were the specific means by which he did it? What about you, Greg? So kind of my history with this question, I might not give as helpful as an answer as you guys did, but about 10 years ago, I got really into the topic of is evolution right or is the seven-day creation right? And that was kind of one of my hot buttons. I even took a independent course on the topic. And so I have some strong opinions and different thoughts on aspects of that. But I think that just over the past 10 years doing ministry, being on the college campus, the way that I've approached and see this question is a lot different. And the way that I approach it now is what is non-negotiable in order to be a Christian? And the question that I usually ask people now is, can you be a Christian and go to heaven and believe in evolution? And I think you can. And I, I really believe you can, because what's the foundation? What's, what's Christianity pointing us to? It's pointing us to the cross, our need for a savior. What's the purpose of the Bible? It's to make us wise as to, unto salvation. And so across the spectrum of Christians, you guys mentioned this, you're going to get a wide range of theories and opinions on how the universe formed. But I, I think I just, what I want to do more than anything is just, let's not make this a divisive issue that negates the cross. Let's not make this a place where we divide as Christians. And so the kind of the main question that we need to ask is, is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is, then you know, that's kind of where we need to start. And 
But I'm going to partner with someone in ministry if they believe in evolution, if they also believe in the cross. I might have some problems with their worldview, but that's kind of that's kind of more of where I go. Like if there's going to be a range of opinions and theories on this, but this shouldn't be an issue that divides us as Christians. And this shouldn't be where we draw lines, I don't think, in terms of the way we see our faith in general. So I'll get into more specifics maybe yeah. on different reasons. I believe some things are the other, but more of just the way I approach this now is you can be a Christian and have different thoughts on the origin of the universe and yeah. the origin of the world. And so, and I think that just comes out of this counter to the way that our culture has kind of taken this topic and made it divisive in a way that I don't think it should be. Yeah. So I guess one of the questions then, Greg, this is going right off your question or your answer is what, what are sort of those non-negotiables? Cause you said you don't want to draw lines in unnecessary places um, but where would we say when looking at the account of the Bible, what is what is sort of the central tenets that we would say, you know, as a Christian, you you need to hold to these like these these are like you lose these, you lose something that's essential to your faith. Where, where would you guys say those lines are? Yeah, I'd like to hear your guys thoughts on that. My initial couple thoughts is one is that God created and like you're saying, the origin of all things is God. So if you don't believe that, then that's definitely a dividing line. I think also that God orchestrates and is sovereign over whatever processes he uses to create as well. I say that's a big one where Hebrews 1, 3, Acts 17 talks about how basically everything is sustained by God. Even the breath that we have is a gift from God. And everything's held together by him. Everything is in subjection to him. And so I think that's another one. If there is just believing God made and God orchestrated, those are kind of two of the non-negotiables. And then also I think there is a really valid reason just to believe that Adam and Eve were real. When you look at the words of Christ and a literal fall of mankind, um, I don't think that's a metaphorical thing. And so I think that's also an important thing to believe that Adam and Eve were real and there was a garden and they fell from the Lord there. Yeah. What would you say, Doug? Yeah. Following up that literal Adam and Eve, I think that is important. Again, there are some Christians who genuinely believe the Bible that would not hold to that. And again, that's not a disqualification from your faith, but I think you lose a lot when you go to Adam and Eve just being a metaphor versus an actual account of the entrance of sin. I think you also lose a lot in this idea of being made in God's image, where he has formed us out of the dust in distinction from the animals and breathes his life into us. And now somebody could interpret that in a different way, but the reality that we are made in God's image to reflect him in the world is so crucial. And then the Adam and Eve fell is paralleled by 
redemption that's in Christ. So if you look at Romans 5, 12 to 21, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, the comment is made that in Adam all have fallen, in Christ all have been made alive, and I'd say there's as literal as Christ is, so is Adam. And some people would disagree with that, and I'd still call them brothers, but I think that would be one of the places that I draw the line of actual Adam and Eve, actual garden, actual talking snake, and maybe that sounds ridiculous. Somebody might call me a fundamentalist for that, and I wouldn't want to be called that, but I'm also not going to say, like, blame on the fundamentalist, because... I can see somebody thinking that I'm just an irrational fundamentalist for holding some of the beliefs that I do, especially if I think it might be a literal six days. How in the world did I get a college education and believe that? I think that's sometimes how people see it. I was watching a video the other day that I'll actually link in the show notes, uh, but it was by Tim Keller, Legan Duncan, and Russell Moore. And Mm -hmm. in that video, it was a gospel coalition video. And in that video, uh, Legan Duncan, who's actually the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, he talked about his three essentials for view of creation. And he said the first one was ex nihilo, which means it's Latin meaning out of nothing. And so he said he views it as incredibly important that we understand that there was nothing before God created, that God is before, beyond, above that idea. He is the creator. And um, he's entirely distinct from his creation. So first is the the ex nihilo, out of nothing. Um, Then he also said that there's the goodness of his original creation. Uh, This disputes a lot of even heresies that have happened in the church, like the Gnostic heresy, which essentially uh, was teaching that, uh, that physical things were bad. And so Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He just appeared to come in the flesh. But this idea of, no, God created a good universe out of nothing. And then he put as the third essential, uh, the special creation of Adam and Eve. And like you were talking, Doug, that mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of theological significance to a, a specific Adam and Eve creation, specifically Adam and Christ and how they relate to um, the human race as representatives and so I thought that was a cool um, sort of three-part, three three essentials. And um, so I'll, I'll link that in the show notes, but I think there's, there's something helpful there. So, Greg, how would you say then that Christianity and science relate to one another? I think it's just what you were talking about earlier where God's created all things. He created science. Science is the way that we measure the world. And so they're, yeah, they're not, opposed or <laughs> related to each other fundamentally and i just think when you think about it there's the idea that science and god are opposed is more of a recent idea and i think that that doesn't really come out of science that we believe that i think that's more of a desire of our will to suppress God. I think that's where that idea comes from, that they're opposed. Romans 1 talks about, we suppress the truth about God by your own unrighteousness. And his invisible qualities have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. But 
instead of serving and worshiping God, we suppress the truth of God. That's what Romans 1, 18 through 23 talks about. And so I think that's kind of why these have just become intention is it's not from science that we've concluded that there's no God. It's not from science that we've kind of pushed God to the side. I think that's more of if it wasn't science, we'd use something else in our culture to say there is no God or there's no evidence for God. So it's just kind of seems more like it's the means by which we're doing that currently. I, I think too, there are versions of science and I would say this differently. I'd probably say there's philosophies or theories of science that are in contradiction to Christianity. And so one of those would be what I would we would call maybe like evolution as a grand theory, which I think is helpful to a distinguish distinction to make. So evolution as a grand theory essentially says that um, the whole story is that all there is is the physical created universe. That's a idea known as naturalism. So all there is is the f- created physical universe, and from that, out of um, out of the universe emerged life from the essential elements that were created out of nothing and slowly over time evolved to where we are now. And so the whole story is it's a closed box system. There's no outside influence on this physical universe, but it is it was created out of nothing spontaneously and now uh, from that has arisen and evolved all that now is. And so that theory as a whole is in contradiction to Christianity. And the main reason is because it it says that there is no creator God. It presupposes uh, as an assumption, as a presupposition, not as a conclusion of the study, but as an assumption a philosophy coming in that there can be no outside influence, that it's a closed box system. And this is related to the idea of um, empiricism, which is kind of a, is again a philosophy, but basically empiricism, what empiricism means is that all that is, um, or all the, the things that you're justified in knowing are things that you can know through your five basic senses. So through taste, touch, smell, what two am I missing? Mm -hmm. Taste, touch, smell. I think, I think that's all of them. <laughs> Sight Close and uh, there's another one out there. Um, hearing. hearing, there we go. There's no way to know. We there's no way to know. We can't know. We can't test it through taste, touch, or smell. But uh, the the only things that we're justified in knowing are things that we can know through our five senses. And I think this is a lot of. Um, the dominant view today that, well, you can't know things that you can't prove scientifically. But the sort of the, one of the funny things about empiricism is that empiricism itself is not an empirical belief because you can't taste your way to knowing that you can only know things through the five senses. That's actually a thought, and it's like a philosophical thought. It's an ideology. And so empiricism itself is not empirical. And so the significance of that is there are ways of understanding the world that are this closed box system. We can only know things through the five basic beliefs, but actually those are beyond mere science. Those at that point have become more of a, of a philosophy, more of a theory. 
And so sometimes I think the question is put, well, which are you going to stand on? Are you going to stand on Christianity or on a hard science of the five basic senses and empiricism and naturalism? And that's actually not really a choice that anyone gets, unfortunately, or maybe not unfortunately, but that's not really a choice anyone gets because everyone's going to have to have, like you said, Doug, some origin story and, and we're not able to prove it through the scientific inquiry. Even, even evolution as a grand theory is still that. It's not something that we can test and prove infallibly through the scientific method. It's a story. It's a hypothesis. And some would see it as a very, very compelling hypothesis of how things came to be. But it's still, at the end of the day, is actually not, in the strictest sense, an empirical science. Yeah, this is just a quick side note on that. But I'd say that most people... Yeah. Mark, what you're saying, yeah. hold to that view of empiricism. And that's where almost everyone comes at as they approach Christianity. And I think that's what's kind of created that dichotomy between science and Christianity. And yeah. like you're saying, it's a false dichotomy. But I think that the way that our culture has even posed it is if you don't hold to empiricism, then you're not intellectual. You're yeah. not operating with honesty intellectually and i think people would value that or say that but i think the again the irony is that that itself is not even a, a phil, that's a philosophical framework that's not an empiricist framework and that's that's how the irony goes what, what were you gonna say though doug it sounds like you got some thoughts yeah i think one other thought on christianity and science is that god has revealed himself through nature and it's possible for science to show us that some of what we think is wrong. So an example of that is it was held for a long time that the earth is the center of the solar system. So it's condemned as heresy to say that we have a heliocentric universe or not universe, but solar system. And even Calvin and Luther, some of the reformers thought that. So it's not limited to the Catholic church, but today no one holds to that, Yeah, that it has to be a geocentric universe. But what happens is we see some of the passages in Scripture that talk about the sun going through the sky or standing still, and people interpret that as this is what it's saying happens. But today we still use that same language, and we talk about the sun setting or rising, and we know that it doesn't rise or set but we're actually on a earth that's spinning. So I think even some of that language, we began to hold to this has to be true, otherwise scripture is invalidated. But now we don't think that. Maybe our great-great-grandkids will think that I'm ridiculous for believing what I do. Maybe. Maybe. Just think you're a goon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, okay, so then a question would be how did Genesis 1 as a text become so divisive? Because it really is. I mean, you there's a lot of fallout that happens over Genesis 1. Uh what's the background of that? When did that become such a divisive text? And and also Doug, maybe maybe you can answer this one and tell us a little bit first of all, what is Genesis 1 and then why why has it become so divisive? Yeah, so Genesis 1 gives the creation account of God making the world, 
and in seven days making the land or the earth for the Garden of Eden and the whole of creation. So there's also different views on how that plays out. Six days, right? But two things that... What was that? Six days, right? And then a day of rest. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, for sure. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> a literalist. I'm a literalist over here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we'll see how that plays into my interpretation. Gotcha. You got him. <laughs> and I want to be a pastor or continue to work in ministry. What am I doing? But then two um, forces that combine to make this so intense in the U.S., one is just the theory of evolution provides a plausible, self-contained explanation for how everything came to be apart from God. So there's the sense that evolution gives people a, a place to hang their atheism and say, hey, I'm not being totally irrational, but I can actually believe that there's no God and not be a fool. So there's a sense there of evolution provides an account apart from religion. And then the second force is a liberalization of Christianity. And that doesn't mean Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, like we might think today. But the liberalism in scripture began to interpret whatever they wanted as not a literal truth and saying that a lot of scripture speaks to the truth or that it's the best of human revelation, but it's flawed and it's not right. So then fundamentalists reacted to liberalism and the fundamentalists were the people that believe that scripture is true, that it's infallibly God's word and and rightly reacting to liberal theology, they held all of scripture is actually God's word. But then something like creation evolution became another sticking point of, hey, we have to hold to a literal seven days. Otherwise, we're going to be like the liberals and everything's going to go away. And there's a few other points like what happens in the end times that have become huge points of debates within Christianity, I would say taken out of proportion to where they should be because it's seen if we compromise on all of these, everything else will be lost. It's a domino effect. Yeah. I mean, I almost, I almost discredited you for your seven day creation. it's it's almost like a kind of like we've talked about a few times a reactionary doctrine maybe where it's not it's coming more as a response to something else we're seeing instead of that it would be (laughs) non-negotiable that's almost a response to something else rather than is maybe just formed biblically so like you became you you take this liberal view, so I'm gonna take as literal as a view as I possibly can, and I think that's one of the things too is sometimes I think in our culture we can or in Christianity we can confuse the idea of the word of God is inspired and true, absolutely in everything it's seeking to communicate, taking a distinguishing between that and taking a literal view, 
And a literal view, what I mean by that is you just think it's literally saying this very thing. And so if, for example, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, or he says, you know, if anyone, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's a great one where mm-hmm. he's in John 6, where people actually literally misinterpret him to mean uh, potentially, likely that they were thinking actual cannibalism. Some of them were thinking, what is he talking about? And so that's an example where you need to take Jesus's words as seriously as possible. Life and death hang on them. And yet a literal interpretation may not actually be faithful to the text. And so that's where I think there's this distinguishing. Sometimes what we need is to be faithful to the literary genre or the literature itself. Um, more than we need to say that the right way to interpret something is through a literal as possible lens. And so, for example, the Psalms, we we take seriously. We take them as the psalm, songs of prayer for the Christian community. That's what they were. Um, they are, they're on the lips of Christ as his songs of prayer. Um, he is praying throughout the life. They're significant. And especially you see them even on the cross quoting the Psalms. And one of the things with that is the Psalms we know are poems. They're poetic in nature. And so when you read a, a Psalm where God is talked about like a rock, you know that that's a poetry. And that to faithfully interpret that, you need to understand the genre. And so that's part of the question then that comes in with Genesis 1 is what does it really mean to take Genesis 1 at its weight? And I think what's happened partially is people have said you need to take a literal view like it's written like a 21st century textbook and maybe Mm -hmm. to give it the full weight is to understand its actual genre of literature and look into that and there's a lot of different views on that and i haven't figured all that out that's one of the thoughts i have of the difference between just taking a literal view and giving full weight to the text itself which is significant especially if you're going to read a book like revelation um, where you're asking the question, it, does all of a sudden like the end of history just become like a sci-fi novel? Or is this describing things in a certain type of genre? And I think that that's important then to ask the question of like, what is the purpose of Genesis 1 and why is it written? Yeah. Because even if it's literally six days, the most important thing for us and the most important thing for moses's audience the jews who are wandering through the desert isn't an exact account of science it still may be an exact account of the origin of the universe in a literal six days but there's theological truths there that are really the driving factor what about then maybe maybe what are some of the differing views doug um if you could start us on that, what are some of the differing views that people have had of Genesis 1 within the Christian Orthodox uh, framework, or maybe even a little out of Orthodox? Yeah, because Christians have a problem with this one, with why does the earth seem so old? And different answers are it's not, but it seems like it is, or just scientists are wrong. And I, I don't know much about the geology side of it, but I've always loved astronomy. And one of the things that's fascinating is let's say the Earth is 6,000 years old only. All right. But we still have to account for the nearest 
or the farthest star that we can see with our eyes is a little over 16,000 light years away. The nearest galaxy that we can see with our eyes is 2.5 million light years away. Yeah. The farthest away individual star that any telescope has seen is by the Hubble Space Telescope. And that's 9 billion light years away. So let's say the universe is 6,000 years old. You still have to account for seeing a star with your own eyes or a galaxy that are longer than that or much, much farther away from us than that. So some of the different views try and reconcile christianity with science other ones start with scripture trying to hold to that as literally as possible and then fit things into that so one of the views is called the day age view and that view says that every day is not a literal 24 hours but a longer period of time and some people hold to that one i don't think it's that common right now but that's one way that people try and say hey they're actually days but it's really old there's a gap theory that says that god created the world good in genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 but then the whole world fell and everything went terribly and then genesis 1 3 god recreates the world again so it looks old and all the dinosaurs are in the ground because they actually died 65 million years ago and now they're there um that one was part of the schofield reference bible which is a part of um dispensationalism or tied to fundamentalism so that was big for a while but right now people don't hold to that at least for the most part that'd be old school dispensationalism yeah old school and which is very different than dispensationalism today. Um, then there's also the view of theistic evolution. And theistic evolution says that God did create the world, but he did it through evolution over the 13 billion years that have gone on. And some people who hold a theistic evolution would say that Adam and Eve did descend from primates. Others would say God created the world and he created animals through evolution, but then he specifically made Adam and Eve out of the ground such that they are distinct. So that's one possible one. I think that one's decently common now. And again, if that's right, I'm not going to be upset in heaven but that's probably not where i lean to right now yeah um but then one of the views that's become pretty popular in reform theology is called framework hypothesis and this was originally come up with by a dutch guy called ritterboss and then meredith klein who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary made it kind of popular in the U.S. And what this one says is that though Genesis 1 isn't entirely poetic, and we're missing some of the markers of poetry in Genesis 1, 
that we do see some structure framework here that is unique and that we see on days one to three that God creates a space and day four to six, he puts the rulers of that space into it. So day one, he creates night and day and light. And on day four, he creates the moon, the stars, the sun. Day two, he separates the waters from the sky and the, um, like the waters on the ground. And day five, he makes the birds and he makes the fish and gives them dominion over the sky and the sea. And day three, he makes the dry land. And day six, he makes animals and humans and gives them dominion over day six. And they would say that day seven, as God rests, it shows that he is now above all of creation. So they would say that there's a framework here that gives still a grounding for the Sabbath of you do have six days of creation, though not literal six days, and then a Sabbath rest that God takes. And that could be a possible view. I don't know too much about it other than that little bit. What's so. what's the significance in that of the f- framework? Like the framework is that each what are what are, what's the significance of the order of the days again? Yeah. So there's an interesting structure that day one he makes the light and the day and night, and day four he makes the ruler of that. So he makes the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night, and the stars. Day two, he makes um, the seas and the water and the sky above. And day five, he makes the ruler of that domain. He makes the birds and the fish. And day three, he makes land. And day six, he makes the ruler of that domain which is animals and humans. Uh-huh. But day seven is God, and ultimately he is the ruler over all, okay. and he rests. Okay. And I think that's an interesting thing. And whether or not the framework hypothesis accounts for the structure of Genesis 1, it is clear that those things are there, which shows us, again, the intentionality of God's design where God is making things with a purpose, and we don't see God just randomly doing stuff, but he's designing and calling it good and taking pleasure in his creation. Yeah. So Israel in the wilderness is to know God is God overall. He's not just the local God, but he is above the Egyptian gods. He's the one who actually made everything and he did it with design and wow we are his people so that's one way of looking at it yeah so then another view is that god made the world in a literal six days and this would be a lot of church history where people land a lot of people that would be fundamentalists would land here and then to account for how is 
the light 16,000 light years away from star, or how are stars 16,000 light years away, 2.5 million light years away, they might say that Adam was made whole. He was made as an adult, and that creation was made whole. So the light that we see might be from that far away, but God's made it such that we would see it. So creation has actually been made whole, and that's part of why it looks old. Then the last view that I think is really interesting is by a guy named Salehammer, and he describes it as historical creationism. And what he's saying is that Genesis 1-1 is discussing God's creation of matter and everything that exists. And then Genesis 1-2 forward is specifically talking about the promised land and the Garden of Eden. And that's an interesting thought to us because we don't tend to think as much about the promised land. But Israel, as they're going through the wilderness is about to receive the promised land and it's such a dominant part of all of scripture and it continues in the new testament with christ coming to jerusalem and dying there and then the new jerusalem coming down from heaven in revelation 20 but throughout the bible there's this piece of god bringing about his garden in the promised land. So what Salehammer is saying is that Genesis 1-1 refers to the creation of everything and that 1-2 forward is specifically talking about the not the creation of the promised land but the preparing of it. So the word earth that's in Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is Eretz and sometimes that does refer to the whole earth but it's the same word that's used as land so when god tells abraham go to a land that i will show you that's the word eretz so what he's saying is that god is affirming he's created the whole of the universe in genesis 1 1 but that that can happen in an indefinite period of time because of the meaning of the word beginning but then genesis 1 2 to the rest of the chapter is talking about God's specific preparation of the promised land and giving that form and structure, creating um, light, darkness, the sun, animals, birds, and humanity in a literal six days. So that's the way that he accounts for an old universe and yet a literal six days of creation. And what he's saying there is for the people of Israel who are hearing this, what they're understanding is that God has now made the whole of the universe, but also he's preparing a land for us. And I think we don't think about that very much, but the people of Israel would have been pretty focused on that as they are walking through the wilderness. Yeah. You know, what's, I think what's really interesting a lot about a lot of this is I've talked to Christians. I remember one conversation I had with a young Christian guy, um, always about my age, but still. We were talking about this, and I just even introduced him to the idea that there's differing views within Christianity about, you know, the age of the earth and things like that. And it was sort of fascinating because he had never really heard that. So he had heard, like, one view of, like, 
I think mostly of a young earth view. And that, that was basically his understanding of like, this is, it's either like young earth or sort of like evolution and um, closed box system, like no God, or maybe like yeah. a, the dinosaurs one. Or, or, or maybe some, or maybe some sort of like, um, like either you believe the earth is 6,000 years old or you believe um, that God used evolution. And it was just interesting because I think one of the helpful things, Doug, even if you can't remember mm-hmm. all these theories, is that it's helpful to know that within Christianity, there's been a wide range of views, which doesn't mean that all the views are right. I mean, obviously, probably only like one or components of some of them are right. But the mm-hmm. idea that I think within Christianity, we actually have a certain freedom that is more than people might at first assume. And that's that yeah. if you're a naturalist, a hard naturalist, and you believe what I mean by that is you believe the only things that exist are the physical universe and the physical matter, you're you're pretty much set. You really only have one option. You have to believe that everything has arisen out of nothing. And evolution is really going to – I think it's probably the only theory that's going to be able to account for that. And in a sense, there's not a lot of openness you can actually have because of your presupposition, because of your philosophy going in that there is no outside God. And yet within Christianity, you have views spanning from the earth is 6,000 years old to the earth is old and God did create um, animals specifically in this way to Christians who would hold to a theistic evolution, the idea that God used the means of evolution. So I just think there's something fascinating about that. The variance within Christianity, which isn't to lend credence to every position and say it's a good position then, um, but it's just to say there's actually um, there's there's some openness within Christianity. And I actually think, ironically, more openness than you could perhaps have in other views even to the science because you say, okay, well, what ways, what ways are we going to be informed by the science and what ways are we going to learn and what, what things do we hold open that aren't contradicting things that we clearly see laid out in the text? Yeah. So those are some of the different views, but I think we would have maybe some concerns with theistic evolution but we'd see that as a possible one. Things like the framework hypothesis, literal six days, historical creationism. We could see all of those being the case. I probably lean towards literal six days, historical creationism. But I'm not set on that. You can feel free as the audience to look up any of these online. We'd encourage that. But we were thinking we might take a little bit of time with the theistic evolution and... And just discuss if somebody does hold to that, what concerns we might have with it. Yeah, I'd say just the initial reading of the text doesn't really mention that or emphasize. It doesn't seem to lead you to draw that conclusion. So for me, that's kind of why I don't believe that theistic evolution is really that's not what I hold to. It just when you look at the initial reading of the text, that's kind of more you're reading that into the text from yeah. outside outside factors rather than it's coming from the text and that's how you're forming things. And I think that you would have to go into a lot of the details about maybe some of the problems with that and what they would be. But when I think when it comes to Adam and Eve, that'd probably be how they 
came to be formed, and even just the uniqueness of mankind being made in the image of God and the value and worth that that has being human and being very distinct in that way. I think that's kind of where I'd probably see some concern is, is it if it's just everything's evolving to a point where maybe there's a degree of difference and then it's a man and God breathes into it. That's, yeah, I think that that could potentially. I I would see that in my mind, in my perspective, I'd be open to hear different perspectives that kind of denigrates the value of being made in the image of God. I I think one of the things too is the question of like, so there's what are you believing, but even why are you believing it? And the question of, are you believing something because you um, are convicted that that's what the text is saying? Or do you feel like, ah, the text is kind of, the text is kind of wrong and science has kind of proved it wrong. And now it's an untenable position to hold what I think the text says. And therefore I have to kind of change my view because you can have a differing view. I am. And so I almost care more about why someone believes what they believe sometimes than what they believe. Or I guess I would say the belief beneath the belief. Um, Like if you're still holding to a view of, I do believe the scripture is divinely inspired and true. Um, and then you say, and and I'm convinced that, that theistic evolution is also correct. That's different to me than saying, you know, I think theistic evolution is true because, you know, science has just kind of disproved the account in Genesis 1. Those on the outset of the what, like how did God create, seem similar, or the how, I guess. But underneath, they're very, very different because one of them is still holding a weight and a value to the scripture. And so sometimes I care more about underlying assumptions and beliefs about scripture beneath that more than the specific how um, how did creation actually happen I think one of my big issues I would say my probably my biggest reservation towards the idea of a theistic evolution is actually the idea of uh, millions upon millions of years of death coming before the fall and so the Bible talks about how when uh, Adam and Eve sin, you know, death enters into the into humanity, and that was one of the consequences of their sin. And it seems to me that there's cosmic, meaning worldwide, uh, potentially universe-wide implications of the fall of humanity into sin. And one of the issues I see with theistic evolution is it's making the claim that actually it's always been the way that death has ruled and had... Um, death has marched us to the point of progress to where we are now. And that to me just seems a little bit tricky that death in this huge grand sense of being a means of creation is coming before sin has entered the world. Now I do understand that some would hold and say, well, the death was specific to humans only. And so the death that enters in through sin is not a death that affects the animals. That is humanity has fallen and they now will die because even the question of, well, would microbes die in the garden? Would worms die in the garden? Would a bird die in the garden? Uh, would those things really not die? Like, is that a strict biblical belief? And I don't. If you eat fruit, is it going to die? Totally, totally. Yeah. And so, like, what type of plant or animal death do you allow before the fall into sin? And 
this is a side topic, but I wonder about this with the what I would call the eternal state when God returns and makes all things new, which I believe is on this earth, that God will make it new, that heaven and earth will become one. But even there, I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's a good question. What to what extent will death exist? Because I don't I know it won't exist for humanity, but will we eat animals in any sense? Will we drink wine in which, you know, the yeast yeasts die after they, you know, are used to make the mm-hmm. wine? Those are questions where all of a sudden I get to into my headspace and I don't really know a lot of the answers to those. But I wonder about those. And I think – but my biggest thing is I just have a hard time understanding millions and millions of years of death leading to the creation of humanity. Yeah, because somebody that holds to a theistic evolution would look at Romans 5, 12 to 21, and say that the death that results from sin is unnatural death. So human death and extent of the destruction that wreaks in all of creation. And that may be possible. I think that Romans 8.20 is an interesting one for me because this is for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here he's tying creation groaning as if it's having a child an extreme amount of pain to sin and being subjected to futility so does that happen before adam or is there a death and animals being wiped out apart from sin and so that begins to be a little bit difficult not that it's impossible, but I think that is a point where could death exist before sin? If Adam eats an apple, it kind of dies. Or the microbes. But then, it, what death is a natural? Does the whole of creation groan apart from human sin? It's like, well, I think, again, that's a result of sin. And the redemption of the whole of creation is part of what Christ accomplishes. So I think we lose a little bit of that picture as well. I think for all of us, the literal Adam and Eve, a literal fall becomes where we'd stick to. Yeah, I would would agree. I think if you you take away... Like we've all, we'd all agree on this. If you take away the special creation of Adam, I think you miss something pretty significant to the story of Scripture and what what I think is it's clearly is trying to communicate. One thing is that even if it is true and God created the world in this way, it is still miraculous and spectacular to think that out of nothing came everything. And then God, over the last billions of years, has formed everything together, created life where there was no life, assembled these smaller organisms of one cell into multiple cells, into plants, animals, into humanity, 
all of that is still astounding. Let's say that's right. There's still an amazement of how in the world could that possibly be. Yeah. One of the things with theistic evolution is, I mean, I think we all say we don't really think this is where Scripture is pointing. We understand that we have brothers and sisters in the faith who would see this as where Scripture is pointing or who would hold to this. But, yeah, it's one of those things where we believe at the end of the day there is a God who's created. He created good. He created intentionally. He made us in his image. We've fallen from his grace, and he sent his son into the world to be our savior. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we want to be open and generous in ways that we can be in our views. And I think this is not one where we need to be heavily divisive with one another. But I would just push, I think, as an encouragement of let's make sure that the ultimate test of our beliefs is the scriptures. Let's make sure that even though we look and examine many things, that we ultimately at the end of the day say, you know, if two things are going to bump up against each other, I'm going to hold to what I think the text is really saying. And that's that's at the end of the day, I think, where we even hold the biggest value in saying we believe the word of God is true. And when we're put when push comes to shove, let's keep falling back on that. And Christians can have differing views on those things, but. Let's continue to hold that the word is true and useful and um, is, is helpful information for how we understand life and, our, and everything. Um, but let's also understand what is it actually trying to communicate. We're not necessarily right now getting into the weeds of a literal six-day young earth creationism, uh, old earth creationism, like these these specific topics and dissecting all that. But I just think, yeah, there's, there's a variance of views. There's a variance of views you can have. I think one thing I would push to in this is not to make a very specific view you have of creation a test of orthodoxy. And what I mean by that yeah. is like if you don't hold that humans and dinosaurs live together, then it's like you obviously don't love Jesus <laughs> um, and like can't be saved. It's like no. like Or if like you don't hold that this is exactly how God created, then it's like you're obviously not a Christian. And I say that because there are Christians who are doing that. There are Christians who take a very hard stance on some of these issues. They make it their test of orthodoxy, and they push it out. And possibly what's happening is what they're actually doing um, is they're actually reading into the text a 21st century perspective of how to interpret and understand it, reading it like a science textbook, coming out of it with that 21st century perspective of Genesis 1. They're not even aware that they're reading into the text their own assumptions. And then coming out and making that a test of orthodoxy, saying if you don't hold to my 21st century textbook view of Genesis 1, then you're not a Christian. And I think that's one of the big dangers is whatever your view may be, if you read that into the text, like if you're coming from some sort of a, bias and we don't we in a lot of ways don't know our biases and then you make that a test of orthodoxy and i think that's why all of us are a little bit hesitant to try and take a super strong stand on anything here and not because we don't have views and we couldn't think through some maybe this is the way it is but just in a lot of ways we just don't want to really misrepresent or read into the text some of our assumptions and then make that a dividing ground for christians so that just in another hundred years, a new group of Christians can read their own bias into the text and make that a dividing ground. 
that's kind of, I guess that's kind of where it leads me along the same lines when I get into this question is whether it's with a Christian or a non-Christian, sometimes I just do try to lead away from the weeds that we can get into with the fine details of the arguments and say like, okay, what, what is the point of Christianity? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's kind of where it's the Bible's leading us to, but sometimes that's just where I try to take people. Okay. We can have kind of different theories on this and argue all day, but when you look at Christ, the evidence of that is overwhelming that he lived, he died, he rose, he changed the course of human history. And so that's really the reality that we need to wrestle with. And let's not let the focus on Genesis one negate our focus on the cross and the reality of that. Well, I, th- I mean, I think like we said, there's a variance of views. Um, we're open. We could we could obviously discuss a lot more. We could probably get a lot more in the weeds of different theories and different views. I think this is more of a higher level. How do we view it? We do believe science is compatible with Christianity. Ultimately, we believe uh, Christianity and, and God himself is a foundation upon which we can have science and study. And so if that's true, the the artwork of the master will not disprove the master. It will only go to show his beauty. And I think that is ultimately where we land on this is science is a means by which we can know and experience God more deeply. Um, there are ways in which we're learning, which we're growing, which are understanding. We want to take God's word seriously and we're going to continue to learn. We're going to continue to grow. But at the end of the day, we're not pitting science and Christianity against each other. We're actually viewing science as a means of continuing to know the God and the creator. And that's our hope. That's our desires to know him more deeply. Um, I think one final thought I would have on this is I think it's, we have to be careful when addressing a question like this to think it's merely intellectual. There's so much at stake with a question like, did God create? Uh, and ultimately it comes down to the question of, are we then in subjection to God? And so Romans one, I think is a great place to sort of end this discussion because Romans one says about God, that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that they are without excuse. And it's saying that God has been made known clear through his creation. He's created He's known through it. You look at the universe, you look at the stars, you look at a mountain, you are without excuse because God's creation has made clear that he is the creator. And yet the issue is that um, in Romans 1 is actually that our sin has blinded us to belief. And so the issue isn't just can we um, look at all the facts unbiasedly and examine them and come to believe in a God. But it actually says um, that claiming to be wise in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In verse 28, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And what's incredible there is that it's actually our sin and our fall into sin that has corrupted our mind. And this is what we're going back to some, even when we talk about um, how we know what we know. 
and believing that the fall has actually affected how we view things. And so I think there are people who legitimately do not believe that from creation they that there is a God. And yet, I also think that they, in a sense, do know that. But I think the issue is like Romans 1, that they know and yet they don't know. They know, but they suppress the truth. And so I think someone can honestly say, I don't see it. I don't believe it. How Show me that there's a God. Why wouldn't God appear to me? Why wouldn't God make himself known? And yet the problem is not merely an intellectual one, but as we see through all scripture, that the problem is the issue of the heart. But the very thing that keeps us from God, which is our sin, keeps us from seeing rightly his world, is also what Christ accomplishes on the cross, which is he is crucified for our sins and he rises to give us new life. And there's actually talk in 2 Corinthians where it talks about how God who says let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the imagery there is actually somewhat cognizant of Genesis 1, that God says, let light shine out of darkness. And then the same thing happens when God reveals truth to us. He says, let light shine out of darkness. So that's 2 Corinthians 4. But that's an astounding one to think about. The issue is sin has hardened our hearts, is keeping us from seeing what is clearly before us in creation, in our conscience, Um, in in different ways, what we should know about God. And yet God, in the same act of being the original creator, shines in people's hearts to give them knowledge of himself. And so that's ultimately what we depend on. So we want to tease through this question. We want to think through it. We want to give intelligent answers. But also we ultimately want to pray and rely on God that he's the one who reveals mysteries. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.